You are listening to Mantra and Magic. The podcast where Eastern philosophy meets Western magical practice. Each week, we will introduce you to concepts, people, and tools that we hope will bring you into closer alignment with your true nature and your divine self. We are your hosts, Amy Solara and Jeremy Renta. Welcome to the show. Welcome to a special series of episodes. This is the second one, but now we're splitting them into um, individual people. (laughs) So you have already heard the one with Matthew and Crystal together. And today we have just Matthew, um, Matthew Merlin, who is an amazing astrologer, scholar, magician. Any other titles you like? Wizard? Um, That that encapsulates it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, we're going to dive deep into some really fun topics that um, that Jeremy and I geek out on frequently, and we hope that you fully enjoy them too, and if you have to come back and listen again and again, great, because every time I do a workshop with this wonderful man, I do listen to it two or three times, and I take notes, and it's worth it, because then I go back and I look at my own chart, and all these insights are coming through. So uh, welcome to the show today again, Matthew. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you so much for having me. Um, When you guys reached out and said that you wanted to talk about some of the like super technical, deep philosophical, astrological stuff, I got really excited because there's just so much there. There's so much to dive into. Um, The the first thing that I want to ask, and this is something that's like slightly off topic, but I think is great for a lot of people who've either worked with me one-on-one as clients or who have gotten into hermeticism. I'm curious, that concept of nothisautum, the know thyself. Yes. Is that actually written over the temple? Like, did they find that there? Like, what's the story behind that? Yeah, there are, um, there are four inscriptions on top of the entryway to the Oracle of Delphi. Yeah, and they're, they're there. They're car- carved in stone, I'm pretty sure. Uh, at the very least, they've been reported by a, a large number of other people talking about them. Um, but yeah, I think Nothi Sealton was at the top. Because okay. uh, it's clearly the most important. Yeah. Uh, the others were uh, made in agon, which means um, nothing in excess or uh, everything in moderation. And then uh, um, a third one that I can't remember right now. And then the final one was um, uh, Evra Paradate, which means uh, surety then flight. And we think it's idiomatic for like never take a loan. Oh. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel like. Never take a loan. Financially? Yeah, never take a financial loan. Yeah, engua para date. Um, yeah, never take a loan. Or uh, literally means surety, like you get the surety of a loan and then you have to run away because you can't pay it back. <laughs> surety then flight. That should definitely be on our currency. <laughs> Especially since we well, don't have a gold standard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> our currency can't even stand up to that because our currency is a loan. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I feel like that that statement of know thyself, that's mm-hmm. what astrology helps all of us do. And yes. It's like to to me it was it was the fastest path to that because it gives us legitimate um practical steps to take based off of our chart. Do you mm-hmm. find like that when you when you read someone's chart, you can look in and say, Oh, yeah, here's your life lesson and that they're surprised or that they're like, oh, yeah. They're generally surprised if the main indicators for life lesson and life path are in a bad house or something, mm-hmm. um, which you know, more often than not, people who ha- do a heavy spiritual practice have something like that. Uh, one of the biggest factors that I look at for spiritual purpose and spiritual path is the house placement of the sun. Um, that gives me like what their spirit is supposed to be focusing on in this lifetime, what they're diving into, what they want to know more about. And I get a lot of spiritual practitioners who have it in like the 12th house or the eighth house. Um, 
which is not surprising to me because they generally had some very difficult experiences, ego death experiences, pain, loss, things being taken away from them at an early age that compelled them onto the spiritual path in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, I find uh, that it's those kinds, it's signing up for those sorts of difficult experiences that prope- many times propel them to see me in the first place. Would you say that um, that people are surprised because you you use a different type of house system that their house has uh, shifted? The son that their the house that their son is in has shifted. Yeah, uh, so I use uh, whole sign houses, which is not the most popular house system yet. It is gaining a lot of traction with astrologers from all kinds of schools of astrology. This system assigns one house to each sign, starting with the rising sign. So if you have Gemini rising, then all of Gemini is going to be your first house, and all of Cancer will be your second house, and so on. So you don't have like five planets in Gemini, and some of them are in the first, and some of them are in the second. If it's in a particular, if all the planets are in a particular sign, they're all going to be in that corresponding house relative to the ascendant. And that does surprise people quite a bit, especially people who have already gotten astrology readings and they're coming to me with some prior knowledge. Um, I will say though that I have never done a reading for someone who was used to seeing their house, uh, their planets in like cock or placidus system, who wasn't converted to whole sign houses by the end of it. Especially when you do some of the concrete predictive work and talking not just about people's psychology and what kinds of things they like to focus on it as an individual, but actually what kinds of things happen to them. And most importantly, when they happen to them, you find that whole sign houses just wins out. It just has a lot more um, explanatory power and it's just a lot more useful in terms of actual prediction, describing what somebody's life looks like. Well, it sounds like a simplification too. Like it makes it so that it's a lot easier, like dropping off three of the planets and then simplifying where everything is. You just, it it seems like it makes it easier to read. It seems like it makes it easier for people to understand too, because things can get incredibly far out there and esoteric when they start kind of breaking down, when you start explaining people's charts especially in the further out planets or with, uh, like you said, with things that maybe they don't have as much of a, if their houses are, are their uh, planets are in, uh, in detriment and where they are on the chart. Yeah. 100%. It's so much more simple. Um, you don't have things like intercepted houses. There's just a one-to-one correspondence between a, a planet, a sign and the house that it's in. It's very straightforward which also as a practicing astrologer, it makes things like what I call like astrological shortcuts a lot easier. So if someone comes to me just like on the street and they ask me what I do and I'm like, oh, I'm an astrologer. And they tell me what their rising sign is. I already know where based off of all, if I know what sign something else is in in their chart, like I know that they also have a, say like a, if I know that there are Leo rising, this is actually something that happened to me. So someone comes up to me and they have Leo rising and then they have uh, Sun and Taurus in the 10th. And then they have, we're born with Saturn and Aquarius. I already know that Saturn rules their romantic partnerships because it's in the seventh house and it rules Aquarius in the seventh house. And so they come to me and I know how old they are generally. And they say, oh, I'm a Leo rising. I've got Sun and this and Sun and that. I'm like, oh, did you go through a breakup recently? And they're like, yes, I did, because this was right as Saturn had gone to Aquarius and her Saturn return began. Um, There's like little short, I didn't even see her chart. And then just because I know whole sign houses and I know what planets are ruling which signs and therefore which houses that are on those cusps, I can get a general sense of what their life is going to look like, what kinds of things are occurring for them. Um, And it's just in a very, very conceptual, like almost mathematical way. That's so awesome. I was like thinking to myself, because in the school that Jeremy and I took, um, which is really great, it's a really great system to help you kind of figure it out. The person who developed it has Mercury and Taurus, so everything's very methodical. Um, (laughs) It's just like you do this step first, don't worry about anything else. Do this step next, don't worry about anything else. Um, They really emphasize the house that the sun falls in. And to me, I was like, oh my gosh, because I had a client this week where I was like, I just, I wonder, I wonder what's going to happen. And I flipped it to whole house and it shifted. And I was like, wow, that would change her whole outlook and everything about how she functions. 
Yet she resonated with the house that I was telling her her son was in based off of Placidus. So like, where would you find the correlations? Would it be in like the signs? Would it be in where the other ones are laid out? Hmm. Sometimes if they find that they're resonating with the original house that their son was in, I can find a different factor that explains that. So let's say, you know, in Placidus, they have son in the fifth, but in whole sign, they have son in the fourth. Right. But they resonate with like, yeah, they like parties and they like going fun and like their children are their, are their life and that kind of thing. But they have um, they also have a Venus conjunction to their son uh, or they have the ruler of the fifth house conjoin their son. That's a big one. Um, like when the ruler of that original house that the son was in in Placidus or Cock or Porphyry is actually conjoined the son. then that shows that already there's a blending of those themes. What um, really makes a whole sign pop is that it's more complete. It's more comprehensive when you start factoring in other other planets ruling other houses. And I found that if I want to do something maybe like a little bit more of a, that I would do in a second reading type of thing where I'm examining the ruler of the 11th, um, that it's just more, uh, I'm going to get more correct results more consistently uh, when I look, start examining all the factors in the chart. Um, Does this also shift the dispositor? Like once you've gone to whole sign houses as opposed to. Yeah, it will shift the dispositor. And that's part of the, um, that's part of like how you know that it, it works so well. So like on average or in some, the dispositors, what the story that the dispositors are telling in whole sign fits the mold of their life more accurately. And it does that consistently throughout, you know, 10, 15, 20 charts. And then, I, I asked first, just for people who don't know what that is, can you explain what that yeah. is? And then, yeah. yeah, the dispositor is a planet that rules a particular house. So let's say you have someone with um, uh, Pisces on the 10th house cusp, then Jupiter is going to become associated with matters related to the 10th house, like career, practice, purpose, uh, levels of fame and this kind of thing. Or if you have Aries on the 11th house cusp, then Mars will be associated with friends. Um, if you have Libra on the fifth house cusp and it's a Gemini rising chart, then Venus would become associated with children, like this, this kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. And it's uh, like when I'm teaching astrology to people or if I'm tutoring people in astrology, this like house dispositor system is one of the most powerful techniques that I know of for predicting like concrete, like things that happen in life, concrete events and circumstances, sometimes down to the day um, when you start incorporating house dispositors. It, it, like you will, con I, I get like my own students um, con like coming back to me saying like, ah, this has completely transformed my practice. And it's really easy. You just use the um, first switch to whole sign houses because it's more effective. And then uh, second, use traditional rulers, uh, no Neptune for ruling Pisces and no Uranus for ruling Aquarius or anything like that. Again, you'll just find that it's a million times more effective. The proof is in the pudding. That's really what matters when you're doing concrete predictive astrology and astrological delineation. And, uh, you know, once you've switched to whole sign houses and traditional house rulership or sign rulership, then you just find which planet rules each which house. And that planet kind of adopts or takes on the themes of that house. Um, this is kind of off topic, but I've also realized that for me, especially when it comes to doing my magical practice, mm -hmm. uh, getting rid of Pluto, Neptune, and Uranus are incredibly helpful when you're looking at just everything on a, on a circular plane, too. So you can see how the mutable signs uh, match up with the mutable planets and how they cross over. I have this beautiful image that I found online. Yeah, for people who are just listening, the graphic that Jeremy is showing is called the Fema Mundi or the, uh, literally the birth chart of the world. And the idea, yeah, epic. Um, the idea is that when the world itself was born, you had sun in, Le or you had moon in Cancer and the ascendants, Cancer rising, and then sun in Leo, Mercury in Virgo, Venus in Libra, Mars in Scorpio, not Pluto, Mars in Scorpio, Jupiter in Sag, and then Saturn in Capricorn. And then you just take the mirror flip reverse of that. Um, so on the, the mirror side of Capricorn is Aquarius, so Saturn goes there, and then Jupiter goes to Pisces, Mars goes to Aries, and so on. Um, that's, a, that's our source for 
the rulership scheme, you know, it's very symmetrical, it's very methodical, and also, again, quite effective. That's also our source for the meanings of the aspects, believe it or not. So Venus in Taurus forms a trine to the moon in Cancer and a trine to the sun in Leo from Libra. And uh, so the sextile, or excuse me, a sextile. So the sextile is associated with Venus, or Venus has, the sextile has a Venusian-like energy. And Jupiter in Pisces forms a trine to Cancer, and Jupiter in Sag forms a trine to Sun and Leo. So the trine is associated with Jupiter. It's very uplifting and expansive. And then uh, Saturn forms oppositions to the Sun and the Moon. And you know Saturn is the god of death and darkness and endings, and uh, Sun and the Moon are the lords of light and life and the body and health. So there's a lot, and people describe that there's a term for things like the Thema Mundi, which is what Jeremy just showed, uh, refer to it as a hermetic mandala. Uh, it's a um, deeply magic, even just staring at the Thema Mundi is a deeply magical practice for astrologers and magicians within the Western esoteric tradition. It will continue to generate results and insights for you. And just looking at that image will deepen your connection to the stars. Is it, does it also match up with the reason why it's uh, the whole sign houses? Like you just kind of angle it to wherever everything is and yeah, everything. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Oh. You just angle it so that it's a uh, cancer in the first house. Um, right. Yeah, because the um, it comes from ancient Egyptian sources where uh, uh, with Sun and Leo, then Sirius becomes a, a morning star, and that's like the Sirius becoming a morning star every single uh, and like in the year was the heralding of the flooding of the Nile. Uh, it's right. the new year, it's the new birth, and uh, also a very important star, very important imagery for the Western esoteric tradition, Sirius. Yeah, I mean, just looking at it, too, with, you know, you have Cancer at the bottom and Leo, like, side by side. Just seeing that, I'm, it made sense as to, like, why Cancer rules, or why the moon rules Cancer. It's like, this is, it's about to be, it's about to cross over Leo. Leo rules where it's at its peak. And then it switches to the other side of cancer where it's going in the decline, right? So, I mean, it's like you said, there's, there's so much stuff that I've gotten from it just from looking at it. Yeah. And the same thing for why Saturn rules, you know, the death of air and the beginning of Earth, you know, like from a, from a magical standpoint, being able to do like understanding the, the modes yes. for me, just looking at this made so much more sense. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's so much contained in there, not just for astrologers, but also magical pr practitioners. Um is there, there, you know, astrology and uh, theurgy or um, magical practice back in the Hermetic era were uh, deeply, deeply intertwined. Well, it's so weird to me that um, the original, the Thema Mundi, is based off of Mars and Scorpio rather than Mars and Aries. Mm -hmm. I always feel like, wait, no, but Aries comes first. Do you, is there a reason for that? Or Yeah, it's a, I think um, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I think uh, I could just kind of say, well, that's how it was when the earth was born. I don't know. <laughs> that's how that's how God made it. Uh, I, I think it's um, at the very least, it's a great pedagogical tool. And I think it well, um, you, you want to keep it in order, I suppose. And uh, if you had the you were using the other side of the zodiac, then things wouldn't be starting with the moon. They'd be starting with the sun. Sun, if it's uh, if you're starting with Sun and Leo and going up instead of going down, if it's Cancer rising, I'm not sure though. It might just be more symmetrical with the Cancer ascendant and then like Moon in the first house and then moving forward. I think there's um, maybe also something to the moon, Sun being in the second house and uh, uh, Mercury being in the third and that kind of thing. That there, which the but any reasoning behind that hasn't survived in the texts as far as I know. Will you talk a little bit about um, the daytime, nighttime, and sect? In that concept, because you're the first person I ever heard talk about that as like yeah. significant in the planets that go along with it. Totally. Um, it's a, you think of the, so the doctrine of sect, it's one of the first things that uh, was discovered with the new translations of astrology that were occurring in the late 80s and the early 90s. And uh, the idea is that there's two sects or two teams of the planets the classical seven. One is associated with the daytime and is in more power when it's a day chart. Uh, and another is associated with the nighttime. The, each sect has a sect ruler. The sun rules the daytime sect clearly and the moon rules the nighttime sect. 
And then each planet, each sect has a benefic planet that is associated with it. You have Jupiter for the daytime and then Mar and then um, Venus for the nighttime. And then there's a malefic planet associated with each sect as well. We have Saturn associated with the daytime and Mars associated with the nighttime. Um, and then Mercury is kind of like split down the middle. If Mercury is a morning star, then he's of the day sect. And if he's an evening star, he's of the nighttime sect. Uh, practically, if you're looking at a chart and you want to know which plants are going to be have like a little bit more importance or a little bit more functional, maybe a little bit more in favor on the side of the native, then you, you look at whether it's a day or night chart and look at which plants are sort of in power during that time. It also will make the malefic planet that is of the sect less malefic. So Saturn in a day chart is more compassionate and helpful than um, uh, than he is in a night chart. And likewise, Mars in a night chart is more helpful than what he is in a day chart. There's um, deep philosophical stuff to this as well. Um, the uh, daytime is sect as something that I'm, I'm working with and one of my teachers is working with as well is associated with the uh, primary motion in Plato. And the primary motion is just the diurnal rotation. It's the sun and everything rising in the east and setting in the west at a constant rate forever and ever and ever. And that's associated with uh, consciousness, spirituality, Plato's world of the forms, union with the absolute, uh, the movement upward, the ascension of the soul. And uh, for that reason, the sun, Jupiter, and Saturn, all their significations are, they lean a little bit more heavily onto the side of uh, more like abstract, conceptual, conscious type things. The sun is your spirit, it's your vitality, uh, it's your purpose. That's why the house placement is so important. And then Jupiter rules all the things of the spiritual life that we like, you know, dancing naked in the sunshine at a hippie commune while you drop acid and uh, you, you, you learn about yourself and you feel expansive. And uh, Jupiter is also associated with wealth, but it's more things like abundance and capital and revenue streams and stock portfolios. These are things that you can't really touch. I can touch a copper coin. That's more Venus but I can't touch a stock portfolio, even though they both bring me abundance. And so uh, Jupiter being uh, of the benefic daytime sect is more conscious, abstract, theoretical wisdom, that kind of thing. And then Saturn is more dark nights of the soul and depression and heaviness. And this is uh, the opposite of dancing naked in the sunshine in the hippie commune while you drop acid. This is uh, growing your hair out long, not shaving or cutting your nails, going into the middle of the woods while you go through a bunch of dark nights of the soul and face your shadow, like not fun as, much. Unless you like burial rituals. Unless you like burial, and some people do. Some people, they've got that, they've got that Aquarius ascendant, they've got that dignified Saturn, they love that kind of shit. They, they, it's what they, it's what they're into really quite a bit. Um, I, got, I, I can see that for sure. Um, <laughs> and then you can do a similar bifurcation with um, Venus and Mars, where like, you know, Saturn is mental illness. Uh, Mars is getting stabbed with a sword or something like that. It's more physical. Uh, Mars will give you an appendicitis in terms of like transits or time lord techniques. Uh, when Saturn becomes a time lord, it's more just like, I don't feel myself. I, there, I, there's something wrong, but I can't place it. And Venus is like uh, um, sex and money and uh, the arts and beauty and things that you can see and touch and experience with your senses. Because so, the um, nocturne, because the, uh, the, the, Nocturnal planets are associated more with the secondary motion, which is more uh, related to matters pertaining to like the material world and the body and uh, concrete material existence and that kind of thing. So it, sect itself makes a, a great, like it's a great heuristic for understanding the topics of the planets as well. Just like right off the bat, you can look at that dis division you know, between malefic and benefic and the sect light and um, you know, primary, secondary motion, you have a pretty good sense of what all the planets indicate. Like just right there. It's very architectonic. How would someone be able to like, say they just pulled their chart up on Astro and know whether Mercury was in one or the other since he switches around so much? Yeah, the, the little kind of trick that I give people is to um, like in your mind, turn your chart so that the sun is like at the top of the chart. Um, just kind of like have to mentally turn it. Uh, if, if you have a 10th house sun, this is really easy. If Mercury is to the right of the sun, as you're looking at it that way, yeah, then it's, um, 
a uh, it's a morning star. It rose before the sun. Like to the right of like if you're looking at the chart and it's on the right side, or like the sun, it's on its right side. Uh, the Mercury is on the right side of the sun. Think of it also this way: if the um, if Mercury is behind the sun in the order of the signs, yeah. then it's a morning star. Okay. If it's ahead of the sun in the order of the signs, then it's an evening star. Because what will happen is if Mercury's ahead of the sun, then when the sun sets, you know, Mercury is going to, you're going to see Mercury there. If you like look at the Western horizon, you're going to see Mercury glistening and gleaming. Uh, and it's an evening star that way. If it's behind the sun, so you have um, uh, Mercury, so like, like just a couple of weeks ago, you have sun in Pisces and uh, Mercury in Aquarius, so it's behind the sun. Then if you look at the horizon at dawn, you'll see Mercury glistening and gleaming there in the east. And then it's a morning star. It, like Mercury there is heralding in the morning. And so it's more, you know, the morning, it's when the daytime is coming into power. It's when the sun's coming into power. It's of the morning sect. It's of the daytime sect. Whereas if it's an evening star, it's of the nighttime sect. Yeah, clearly Mercury is so complicated. He just likes to switch and change things. He, he's neither malefic nor benefic. He doesn't have a fixed gender, um, doesn't have a fixed sect. He just likes to play around. In the Greek system, like in the, in the documents that you're looking at that are just coming to light, mm -hmm. do they call him Hermes? Or mm -hmm. do they call, and so it's the same as all the gods. So like Venus yeah. would be Aphrodite. And yes. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, so it's uh, Kronos instead of Saturn, Zeus instead of Jupiter, uh, Hermes instead of Mercury, Ares instead of Mars, and yeah, then Aphrodite instead of uh, Venus. Helios for the sun and Selene for the moon. Yeah. Um, which I th I've, I've considered uh, switching that in our nomenclature. That was what one of the translators, Robert Schmidt, was very fond of doing because there's a it's almost like those names for the plants have become kind of empty to us. We just sort of say them and they don't make us feel a particular way. Whereas if I say like uh, Kronos is rising right now, that like, that's very evocative. There's a lot of like, like sensation that that creates and it feels more alive. Um, that applies to a lot of terminology that, that in astrology now, a lot of our terms like aspect, sign, uh, even house, to some extent, they become kind of empty. They're, there's not, they don't really like evoke in us any like feeling or a particular image. It just feels like empty jargon. Um, yeah, mutable is the same way. Cardinal, fixed makes sense. You know, it's like, it's fixed. Yeah. Like, cardinal and mutable, I feel like kind of like, like has lost, has lost a lot of meaning for people too. But I think I, you know, I think of the bird when I hear cardinal, even though I'm, you know, have studied astrology most of my life. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. They, and we picture your picture yourself as one of the founders of astrology thousands and thousands of years ago. And none of this terminology exists. You've got to pick really important evocative terminology that gets across what you're trying to express. Um, we don't we didn't have to do that. We basically just took Latin words, which are translations from Greek originals and uh, we, we anglicize the Latin, like aspect. It's just like an anglicization of the Latin ad spectere. Um, it doesn't mean anything for us anymore. Same thing with cardinal, thick, cardinal fixed and mutable. In to, to bring back some sense of like embodiedness or like livedness almost, uh, we would start calling cardinal signs changing. That was the, mm -hmm. the original Greek tropicon literally means changing or turning. And that's because uh, Interestingly enough, this is something that we identify more with mutable sign people nowadays. Cardinal signs were considered to like be more changing, uh, more moving around, less less stable, less fixed. Um, and I've seen this time and time again uh, when I when I look at charts. Uh, you have the ruler. Of, so we have the house, say the house dispositor, uh, the ruler of the seventh house of one-on-one -on -one relationships and romantic partnerships. So you have it in a cardinal sign. They're going to have tons of relationships. They're going to change who they're with constantly and frequently versus if they have, um, we'll say Saturn in Aquarius ruling the seventh house, then that's Aquarius is a fixed sign. They're going to be more like one person throughout their entire life. They're not going to have tons and tons of relationships. Same thing with the ruler of the 10th. If it's in a fixed sign, that's more like, you know, I graduate college and then I, uh, I stay at one company for 40 years and then I retire versus ruler of the 10th in a fix in a, like a cardinal sign is like constantly 
changing. I'm doing something else every single day. Um, and then mutable signs were called double-bodied or bicorporeal because they were said to have uh, kind of like one foot in the cardinality and one foot in the fixedness. They were kind of like in between. I've noticed that functionally is like one to three of whatever is 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 in question. Ruler of the seventh and immutable sign. Um, if it's a cardinal sign on the seventh house, then it's going to be like two to three long-term relationships throughout their life. If it's a uh, if it's a fixed sign, then it's one to two. I have Saturn in Sagittarius in the seventh, mm -hmm. and Jupiter is in Gemini in the first. Mm -hmm. And my first marriage lasted for seven years. And then I had a ton of relationships and then now I'm in my second marriage and I feel like this is it. And yeah. If we ever do separate or one of us dies, I wouldn't go. Yeah. Yeah. Just that, like that one to two thing. And there's some leeway, there's some wiggle room, um, of course, but I think like it's, it's more like a general trend, general pattern that you do find like from reading charts over and over and over again. And this also, that cardinal fixed immutable, like the way that that technique is being used, it's a lot different um, than how we would think of it nowadays, which is more purely psychological, what kind of person you are. They're using that to answer a very specific question, which is like, the question is how many? So they're like, okay, rule of the seventh, relationships. How many relationships? How many careers? It's a specific question that you're giving a specific answer to. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of the techniques in traditional astrology are used that way. Um, it's, there's no fluff. Uh, it's very, this means that, this means that, um, that, that is in general the kind of mindset that people you start adopting as you continue to study classical astrology. Well, it seems like too, that there's a, uh all of the alchemical principles are hidden here, right? You've got seven and seven rules, everything, you know, when you start to get into hermetic magic. Um, I, I don't, I don't know if necessarily know if, if this is even the right question to ask. Like, did it, did it come from the planetary system and people studying and understanding the stars and understanding exact or the planetary movements? Or do you think that that stuff was uh, encoded and hidden in the way that we, see that like which is it's kind of a chicken and the egg question right, right. like which which yeah. do you think came first or do you think that that's just like the rule of nature and how things work um what i think happened is that and this is something that i talk about when i when i'm teaching and i i do my like my introductory class to astrology i talk about the the cosmology and the creation of the universe um the 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 sort of creator god in egyptian atum he, he set up the world to look a particular way so that when Atum itself decided to incarnate into existence, there was mm -hmm. a particular road, consistent roadmap that it could follow as individual consciousnesses like you and me and Amy um, that, that would help it to kind of navigate its life uh, is, I think, very much just kind of like long story short written into the fabric of reality that 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 that's sort of how it is planets in cardinal signs or in changing signs prefer they just tend to make multiple results of whatever it is that they're doing versus their when they're in a fixed sign it's more once and done and that's it it's something like deep in the fabric of reality i would say yeah and possibly just confined to our portion of reality right because awesome. i mean it's there's 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 other planetary systems. We from uh, Baudet's law, we know that like there's a certain structure of like the concentric circles of how the planets are technically supposed to be, uh, you know, spaced out. And you know, if you're in a if you're in a, a, a possibly maybe an older star system that has you know five planets that are existing harmoniously and have existed for a long time, then it might be more of a simplified structure. And of course, like I said, this is hypothetical of what I'm discussing. So using yourself, Libra. <laughs> I will, um, and uh, I think uh, I think man, probably many of the, the listeners here know about Carolyn Elliott, uh, a very dear friend of mine. I don't think she'll mind me sharing this story. She had a dream with uh, David Bowie in it, and she was like up in a spaceship with David Bowie. I think David Bowie was smoking a cigar. This was after David Bowie died, so he was probably there. And um, he just looks at Carolyn and says, astrology is so much different in space. 
So like, so what you're talking about, Jeremy, like it could not be hypothetical. Like it could have had this message from Bodhisattva Bowie uh, coming in and saying that like, yes, actually the, the rules are completely different in other star systems, but this is just uh, kind of how probably indexed to the kinds of lessons and experiences that consciousnesses want to have when they come into this world. It's just things are set up in a particular unique way here. But if you go, and now we're talking like kind of into the woo and the higher order stuff, but if your your spirit decides to go to Sirius after this, you know, then it's a it's a different star system. There's like astrology, the astrology there. And it probably works very similarly in a higher order sense uh, of like, you know, you have different bodies revolving around the, the planet or whatever that you're staying on and it affects you in a particular way. But um, what's there and what it's doing would be completely different. Okay. Okay, wait, on that note, mm -hmm. this is something that I'm always going into, because Hermes Trismegistus, so with Mercury, all of his names, who comes back frequently, yes. who was here during Atlantis, who was here during the Neturu period and the Golden Age of Greece, and all- And he's hanging out on your altar right now. He did a couple of episodes ago, he just knocked shit over. <laughs> I feel like came like just goes back and forth oh, yeah. to Sirius, and it like that's that's his main home planet world star system, and that some of the other ones come in with him. Do you feel like the other planets, the other well, not maybe Helios mm -hmm. and Selene, but the other ones that we use in our system, that those energies also are coming from the same serious place and that's why that star is so significant to us or do you feel like they've come from oh systems? that's a really good question i think uh there are definitely some spirits that live on each of the spheres that there's some i think like the the raw raw consciousness for instance uh is like yeah if you like you were to summon him and talk to him he'd be like yeah the sun's my home that's that's, that's where i hang out uh arguably even like he is the sun um uh, uh whereas there are some definitely some other spirits that are deeply resonant with different planets. And I think that they almost use that particular planet as like an energetic modulator when they come down into the earth. So if you're, uh, let's say you want to call in some particular beings from Algol, uh, hypothetically, you're looking for like some really heavy duty protection. Uh, or you want to cut somebody's head off, you know, like like one or the other. Uh, I'm not here to judge. Um, the, then like those beings, they're probably, they're going to stop down at Mars and they might, you know, either come with martial spirit, spirits from the planet of Mars, or they will even just send martial plants as delegates um, sometimes as well. Because uh, this is something that I, I hear in like lots of different cultures uh, throughout the world where that all tend to believe in star beings in one way or another, that um, they have some challenges actually showing up at this density. Uh, and that, that's something that you hear, you hear all over the place. And it's something that I've seen. It makes a lot of sense. So they use planets as sort of like go-to allies, middlemen kinds of things to uh, make sure that the messages or the help is, uh, is gotten across. Yeah. I feel like that's where the the whole like Hathors are from Venus thing came from. I feel like Hathors don't come from Venus. They just stayed there. For stayed there a for a little bit, or they might like stop by Venus on their way down here or something. Um, you can, you can divide up all the deities according to the seven planets for sure. Like you can put them all in their like compartments in terms of like where they, what they come through, what they're channeled through. But many of these deities, the, uh, um, spirits, gods, bodhisattvas, whatever, are coming from different places uh, amongst the fixed stars. They're like a very real consciousness somewhere else. And this is like, this is another thing that I've been geeking out on because I, I think the Llewellyn's Complete Book of Correspondences has become my Bible. Yeah. <laughs> Just daily opening it. And I was looking at some Persephone and Hecate mm -hmm. things and I was like, okay, they could be Marshall. They could be Venusian. They could be Saturnian. And um, did the Greeks assign the rest of their pantheon, the rest of their Olympians, and then all of the, the other ones that are lesser, and then all the Titanic forces that are earlier, did they have specific planetary associations? Not so much. It's really just the, um, 
They just took the names from the traditional five uh, that, that, we, that we know of, you know, Kronos, Aphrodite, Ares, um, Zeus, and uh, Hermes. And then uh, they kept this, the, the Titans kept their same name, Helios and Selene, the Titans. Uh, other than that, those are all the ones that really show up. There are other variant traditions within Hermeticism that really focus in on a particular other deity who, like Olympian or not, like uh, the Chaldean or oracles, for instance, really, really lean heavily into Hecate. Hecate Zoter, they call her. The, the, she's the savior. Um, the, uh, but that's about, that's about it. Um, one thing of interest in the actual original Greek, it's not even the, uh, it's, it's not um, Zeus that is in Aquarius right now, kind of gearing up to go into Pisces. It's... Uh, um, ho aster tu dios, the star of Zeus. Um, so the sense that they're kind of working with is that um, the the being of Zeus is somewhere else, a higher higher order deity concept, divine figure, uh, and that is his, his representative on on the earth. That's the the star that is associated with Zeus. Um, yeah, so they still, I think it's like a holdover that there is the, that the pantheon is the highest. And five members of those pantheon, of that pantheon, well, four members of the, the, the Olympians and then uh, Kronos and then Helen, uh, Helios and Selene, they have like representative beings that are here helping to see their will through. It's always so weird to me that Aphrodite is considered an Olympian. Yeah, well, I think it's... Um, it makes sense to me. Uh, I think hist like historically, I think a lot of the information around Aphrodite uh, comes from the sort of Ishtar Inanna figure, who is like a very, very ancient uh, goddess of life and death. Uh, I think probably very rooted in the Anatolian mother goddess. And um, this like going like 5,000, 6,000 years, years back. Um, I think that, you know, in the very, very old Greek consciousness, there's this sense that Aphrodite is not a holdover is too is like negative, but like if you could be a holdover without being without the like the bad connotation, uh, you're, you're of like a higher order. Um, she's functionally speaking, she's uh, she's Zeus's aunt. She's uh, she's has more sway even. She has more experience in virtue of being the goddess of love. Um, She's uh she's the god of war's great aunt. She has much more, you know, age authority. Um, I think that's why I always felt like she was Titanic since it, it was like Kronos's action against or mm -hmm. sending her like into the ocean and then her coming out of it. Yeah, yeah, it is a really interesting myth. It's it's not one that I fully understand myself. Um, <laughs> who does? They've been uh, thousands of years, and everyone's still yeah. like, who the heck are these? Well, yeah, yeah. Huh. <sighs> um, so we have just um, a section of time, and I want to get into some of these um, these concepts that people would run away from because we've mentioned them, like malefic. Uh -huh. in detriment in fall and yeah, yeah. So, like how do we embrace that because everybody is like run away from them so that modern psychology is like this is just your shadow work versus no he's gonna mess with you yeah, yeah i mean what i would say this is uh, like i do this i talk about this a lot um it is your shadow work but shadow work is painful like like nobody wants to do shadow work really unless you're like unless you like you know do develop a taste for it after a really like long period of time most people starting out uh it's there's pain there that you don't want to look at and malefic benefic uh it's a very very simple distinction you like have to take away a lot of the value like laid lit, the the like the value laden language around it um it's just things you like versus things you don't like um yeah, like would you rather your romantic partner gave you roses or stds one of those is something that you like and then one of those is something that you don't like and unless you've gotten to a really really evolved state of consciousness where you don't care which one you get then i think that you'll find 
the malefic benefic distinction to be really useful. Um, you just like even like doing psychology, uh, like from a psychological level, you experience yourself as wanting to have roses and not wanting to have STDs. So, you know, Mars rules STDs and Venus rules roses. And it's really simple. Um, they like, sometimes we have good days and sometimes we have bad days. And if you want your astrology to be complete, then you need to have a system that honors that. Because otherwise, when you start getting clients and people coming to you and you're just constantly whitewashing everything, they're going to leave feeling miserable and you won't have actually helped them because you've just whitewashed everything. It's not actually useful. It's not a good astrology. And that's very harsh, but you know, like that's, um, that's just kind of how it is. It's great for people who just want to have fun to just like talk about how everything is deep down really good. But, you know, if Mars goes over your moon, it's not going to be a fun time. Um, and we all know that we all, and acknowledging that actually helps your shadow work do like go along so much further. It's again, it's not inherently good or bad. Uh, it's just experiences that you're going to like versus experiences that you won't. Um, and the detriment or fall, uh, versus being exalted or uh, essentially dignified in some way, that's, um, that's one thing that I, I tell my clients and I tell my students is that that refers more to the character of the planet than it does to you. So Mars is in fall in uh, Cancer, but that doesn't mean that you are in fall if you have Mars in Cancer. Uh, There's a big difference. Mars doesn't like to be in Cancer. That doesn't mean that you don't resonate with the sign of Cancer. Um, or uh, my favorite one is uh, Mars in Libra, because um, like you do just find that plants don't function very well on a practical level when they're in a sign that they don't like to be in. I have so many clients who are very deeply spiritual and very compassionate who have Mars and Libra, and they cannot tell somebody no to save their life. They're because like, like the moment they say no or they try and set up a boundary, they, that Libra consciousness comes in and they're like, oh, well, I can see their point of view. And, you know, it's not really too bad if they take this from me. You know, ultimately they're like, we're all one. And so it doesn't really matter. And uh, I can't, it's wrong to set up boundaries and that kind of, and they just keep, keep sort of keep spinning. And then by the time uh, they, by the time they stop thinking about it, they've already been mugged and had their lunch money stolen. Uh, I do a lot of work with clients around um, setting up good boundaries when like with Mars and Libra or something. It's uh, psychologically really useful to incorporate detriment and fall to know your problem areas. And chances are that it's not telling you anything that you don't already know about yourself, especially if you're a spiritual practitioner. Yeah. For those who aren't astrologers, what's the difference between detriment and fall? Detriment is the sign opposed to its rulership. So uh, Mars in Libra is in detriment. Um, Saturn in Cancer is in detriment. Uh, um, Jupiter in Gemini is in detriment. Uh, not as much a debility in the oldest texts, uh, kind of associated more with just like traveling abroad because it's in the farthest away place from its uh, original home. Uh, and then um, fall is the opposite from its exaltation. Uh, arguably a little bit more challenging than detriment, actually. Uh, so Mars in Cancer is in fall. Jupiter in Capricorn is in fall. Um, Saturn in Aries is in fall. And that's a particularly tricky one, um, Saturn in Aries. They see a lot of problems with uh, impulse control and burnout with Saturn in Aries, for instance. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, uh, yeah, for the, for the most part, a lot of like the difference comes down to the fact that, you know, if a plant is in detriment, it's opposite to like a plant, uh, it becomes particularly challenging for the house that it rules. Cause you know, it's opposite the house that rules Saturn in Aries or Saturn in cancer in the 10th house could indicate problems around father figures because it rules the fourth and the fourth is father. And this is that whole, like tying it back to the house and the rulership. Right, yeah, all, yeah, we've come full circle, which is very fitting for astrology, we've come full circular, circle to the house dispositor system, yeah. So awesome. Well, is there, do you have any workshops coming up if people are really jazzed about this and they want to dive in? Yeah, well, um, my fiance and I, Crystal, are continuing to teach monthly classes on wealth, and uh, which is, a, yeah, a great platform. I encourage people to sign up for it if they haven't already. And I am actually teaching, it's not so much a workshop as it is a lecture 
on April 24th, the Saturday, April 24th, I'm teaching an online lecture at Kepler College, which is the United States only college dedicated to astrology. And it is on, um, the title of the talk is The Platonic Roots of Western Astrology. So I'm going deep, deep, deep into the platonic overtones and platonic sourcing for a lot of astrological techniques. Um, it's very philosophical if you're into that kind of thing. It's, uh, I bring a lot of important, I'm drawing out a lot of important conclusions from the philosophical analysis though about what actually astrology is and also like what it, as a result, what it doesn't have to be and what it doesn't have to do, how it can stand on its own two feet as a philosophy, as a practical, useful philosophy uh, without having to try and turn it into a science. You don't like you don't have to explain astrology in terms of uh, like cosmic rays beaming down to affect human beings in order for it to make sense. And uh, you don't need to be able to measure and quantify astrology in order for it to actually work. Uh, and I, I, my, my hope is to like really enliven people with a lot of very like martial enthusiasm to kind of like give the finger to the mainstream scientific community um, because astrology has power and rigor and authority just in the same way that any other philosoph useful philosophical system like Buddhism does, just in virtue of being effective. Do you, um, do you teach anything on theurgy? So if people want to get more into this magical side of it without going full golden dawn or something. Yeah, I do. I teach, um, I, not any classes. I work with apprentices. I teach theurgy and meditation coupled with astrological analysis for people who are uh, really, really interested in diving deeply into their spiritual practice. Maybe they have a spiritual practice currently, but they're desperately looking for a teacher. They're looking for someone to guide them one-on-one uh, -on -one through the ins and outs of astrological magic and meditative practice. Uh, Especially the spiritual practice, the daily rigorous practice is very important for, for actually doing theurgy. It's not enough, in my opinion, just to like cast, do a ritual once a week. It requires daily rigorous, consistent work and having a teacher to basically like some of my students, my apprentices will call me the abbot because I'm just like very uh, disciplined, very heavy in, on the discipline, uh, but it gets results. It gets results and that's what matters. Like we could, we could you could call, call, you could Saturn, call me Saturn. Saturn. You could call me Saturn. Yeah, I, I have Sun and Capricorn. Um, yeah, they're very, very Saturnine in my approach. <laughs> I love that. Well, thank you so much. Um, Jared, do you have any other questions? I'm, I'm just sitting in awe, honestly. No, I've, I'm, I'm good. And I, I, I was like, I wonder if we're going to get into to, uh, mantra, if we're going to get into um, any type of Sanskrit. This gives us a reason to have another conversation in two weeks, honestly, if you're available, Matthew. So I'm, oh, I'm yeah, very yeah. grateful for, for you spending your time with us and sharing your insights. It was truly magical. Thank you. It, it is truly my pleasure speaking with both of you, Amy and Jeremy. I really enjoy speaking with both of you. Uh, you guys, like, really, I get so excited about speaking with around all the, like, super technical, nerdy, like, nitty-gritty stuff that, like, when I go to other places, they're like, shh, I'll make it simple, make it simple. Uh, but, but you guys are just like, yes, give me more, give me more, give me more. And it get, I, I thoroughly enjoy it. I, I, I love com coming on to your podcast. Thank you.